Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the 2019 Lawrence Environmental Justice Podcast Series. I'm Margo. And I'm Matthew. Today, we'll be talking about how the Hmong community in the Fox River Valley finds a connection with the natural environment through the cultural tradition of fishing, as well as some of the challenges that the community continues to face today. Stay tuned to learn more about these obstacles, their possible solutions, and hear from UW Oshkosh sociology professor Paul Van Auken about his important qualitative research and the EJ outlook for this heavily displaced group of people living with us along the Fox River. I'd like to start this episode of the Lawrence Environmental Justice Series by briefly touching on the history of the majority of the Hmong demographic in the United States. Margo, could you fill us in? Sure. Most of the Hmong diaspora migrated to the United States after the Vietnam War. Originally from southern China, they have a long history of displacement, first from southern China, then from Laos, because of their sacrifices and help to the United States during the war. Hmong families were promised the opportunity to immigrate to the U.S. Wisconsin and Minnesota attracted the Hmong in particular because of the social services provided by churches and other agencies, which helped them settle in these states. Agriculture was also an important part of Hmong life, so the vast amounts of land in Wisconsin were also attractive. Today, Wisconsin has the third highest Hmong population in the country. In particular, the cities in the Fox River Valley have some of the highest Hmong concentrations in the state. This is potentially problematic for a couple important reasons from an environmental justice perspective. Firstly, there's a history of intolerance in the Fox Valley. According to sociologist James Lowen, author of the best-selling book, Lies My Teacher Taught Me, all major cities in the Fox Valley, and most notably Appleton, were considered sundown towns until the early 1970s. This meant that the cities were defined by informal and even legal racial intolerance particularly towards African-Americans by an overwhelmingly white population. Although these practices were becoming frowned upon by the mid-1970s, when the majority of Hmong immigrants began to arrive, it stands to reason that the landscape of intolerance didn't change overnight. Where there's bigotry, there's likely environmental injustice. Another issue which has more viscerally impacted the Hmong people in the Fox Valley is the condition of the river itself. In the mid-20th century, seven paper companies began dumping polychlorinated biphenyls, or PCBs, into the water as a byproduct from the paper whitening process. This contamination wasn't discovered until 1971, and cleanup didn't begin until 1998. Lawsuits were finally settled this year, in 2019, and much of the dredging process to remove the contaminated soil from the riverbed has been completed, but PCB levels continue to be dangerously elevated parts of the river. These aqueous PCBs are consumed by fish and become highly concentrated within their systems, acting as a dangerous carcinogen. When the fish are consumed, they can cause physical deformities and several lethal types of cancer. While this severely impacts the bird population of the Fox Valley, it also has a devastating effect on people who choose to catch and eat fish from the river. This is particularly impactful for the Hmong community. Fishing is an important way, way for Hmong to find connection in the Fox River watershed. But the practice has also become a double-edged sword. Fishing is a traditional practice for Hmong back in Laos, so being able to continue 
your um fishing is an important way for Hmong to feel fishing is an important way for Hmong to find connection in the Fox River watershed. But the practice has also become a double edged sword. Fishing is a traditional practice for Hmong back in Laos, but being able to continue this helps them integrate and feel a sense of place in Wisconsin. The tradition doubles as a good way for Hmong individuals to connect with other people as well as the landscape around them. However, because Hmong disproportionately participate in fishing and consuming fish caught in the river, they are disproportionately affected by PCB pollution. Signage in the Hmong language has been used to warn people about the dangers of consuming too much fish from the fox. This has been somewhat effective in encouraging younger Hmong Americans while making them feel more included. However, older Hmong have been shown to often ignore these warnings. This can result in them and their families consuming unhealthy amounts of poisoned fish. These patterns are illustrated by a study published in 1994 by Ray Hutchison and Clifford Kraft, two professors from the University of Wisconsin Green Bay. After interviewing members of 125 Hmong households from around the Fox Valley, Hutchison and Kraft found that these households consumed an abnormally high number of freshly caught fish from the Fox River. In fact, 24% of households consumed at least one fish every two to three months, while 9% consumed at least one fish each week. Additionally, they found that white bass, the most commonly caught fish among Hmong anglers, could contain PCB concentrations of up to 4.8 parts per million far higher than the EPA maximum tolerance level set at 0.2 parts per million to 3. While many thousands of tons of PCB-concentrated sediment has been dredged from the riverbed since 1994, this study remains as a chilling scientific confirmation of environmental injustice, at least at the time of its writing. So now, we would like to introduce our podcast guest, Paul Van Auken. He's professor of sociology and environmental studies at UW Oshkosh. We were especially interested in his paper, Hmong Voices, Fox River Perspectives and Experiences, due to its nuanced and up-to-date qualitative examination of Hmong experiences on the Fox. Hmong participants in this study were asked to take pictures that represented their experiences on the Fox River, and 15 were interviewed. Today, we're going to ask him some more questions about the the Hmong Voices Project. One of the first questions I'd like to ask you, um, since um, our listeners haven't read all the work that you've done, um, could you tell us a little bit about your research on Hmong fishing practices in the Fox River watershed? Yeah, uh, I'd be happy to. This project is, is an interesting one in that it started out as an applied research project, meaning I was put into contact with an organization called the Fox Wisconsin Heritage Parkway because they wanted someone to gather data that they could use to help implement their plans for this parkway that, that uh, is being developed um, for the full extent of the, uh, the Fox River and then the, the Wisconsin River from where they intersect down to the Mississippi. 
so it started out as me doing something uh, kind of in the summers as a consulting gig because one of my colleagues um, worked with these folks on water-related issues. And so that was a, that was a neat project to be able to do, particularly because it was so tangible. It's not some professor sitting up in an office and dreaming up big questions, which is good too, but I prefer to do this sort of thing where it has really practical um, origins and you know implications. So the article that was eventually published was taking this data that we produced for the client, in effect, this, this nonprofit organization, and then converting it into an academic publication, including bringing in a collaborator from this interdisciplinary research team that I'm part of at UW Oshkosh. When I was um, reading your work, I just thought, wow, these are, you know, real people who actually took these photos. And um, I think that it gives it a lot more of an impact. I agree. It really helps you uh, get the full impact of, like, what, what's really going on. And that's the big boon of qualitative research over quantitative. That's right. That's right. And, and it never fails in the times I've used it. Not, not every photo. But in every batch of photos, there are these amazing photos. You know, yeah. people when you when you ask them to do something like this, it doesn't. It's got some limitations to it because it requires people to do extra work, and that's you know, that's often. And I think that helps explain why when people are trying to find out information, whether they're a government entity or a nonprofit or, or whatever the case might be, people often leap to doing a survey because it it has this kind of apparent ease to it, you know. You, you can send out this piece of paper, people can just pull it out and send it back. But you miss you miss uh, a lot of the detail and the richness and the power yeah. to do that. It's just that you have to be able to convince people that it's going to be worth their time to do much more than they would, most likely, uh, than they would for a standard survey. Because you're asking them to go, you know, literally walk around to different places, to think things through ahead of time, to take the pictures, and then you still haven't even done the interview part. So it's got some limitations, but what's really cool about it, um, especially being a sociologist that's that's interested in equity, social equity and things like that, which you know, that's a hallmark of sociology really and yeah. some of the other social science fields. But if we're really interested in things like environmental justice and equity, we want to help not just – we don't want to just extract information from people. We can get really good information while possibly helping to flip a switch inside of them that helps empower them yeah. to see themselves differently. And I'm not saying that it's it's this magical thing that that ha- and it happens for everyone, but I know from experience that it does happen for some people, and that's enough for me. And I have people tell me, "Wow, this was this was transformative. I'm I'm looking at where I live differently. I want to get more involved now." Um, and- and and that's and that's really neat. Um, and and kind of pivoting off of that environmental justice point, um, we were doing a little bit of research into the Fox River Valley. Um, and so I I, I kind of wanted to talk quickly uh, about the PCB pollution in the in the Fox River as a potential environmental justice challenge for the Hmong population. Um, and for example, uh, I was I was taking a look through the research and. Uh, in this one article I found, a 1994 article by uh, Ray Hutchison and Clifford Kraft uh, mm. from the University of Green Bay. Um, yeah. I, I read it. 
I, I, I've met Ray and I, I've used his work in, in uh, urban sociology classes. But anyway, that's great. Oh, wow. Yeah, that, that's awesome. Um, but this, this particular article, um, the, the, those folks managed to interview uh, 125 Hmong households in the Fox Valley about fishing practices. Um, and what they came to the conclusion about is that due to the high rates of local fish consumption in the area, the Hmong community and particularly second generation Hmong Americans are uh, more at risk from PCP ingestion than other groups. So I guess what I'm curious about is uh, through your research, have you gotten a, a feeling about like how the communities responded to, uh, to the threat of PCB pollution in the Fox Valley? Yeah, at first I want to say, you know, for, for students, listeners and such, that's an article that I wish I would have read. Um, but I think people get nervous, uh, and this is part of what I'm saying, is people get nervous to present their own research because they dread the snarky professor in the back. And I'm talking about <laughs> professors. I'm talking about professors, too. Yeah. The snarky professor in the back that's going to say, well, haven't you read such and such? And uh, you, can't, you, simply, you simply can't find everything. And you can't, so when things like that come up, I, I would say, man, I need to find that. That's a that's a really that was a lot of respondents and and really uh, germane to that focus on environmental justice for sure. These issues did come up in in our in our work, you know. And, and what's cool about it, using something like this participant-driven photo station, is that I didn't ask specific questions about environmental yeah. justice issues per se. We just we asked people to take pictures of things in different categories, including uh, things that that are a barrier to the, their enjoyment of the Fox River water system, or the watershed. And then those concerns emerged, which, you know, if you think about validity, that nobody is leading them towards those kinds of answers, but they did emerge uh, from several people. And it was really it was interesting to talk about second generation. Sorry, um, what were you saying? Sorry, I, I was just mentioning that. I, I was just commenting that it was something that was very much on their minds then. Exactly. And and you say uh, the impact would be greater on second generation among people. And most of the this sample that, that we got was, was younger. It's yeah. Kind of an interesting subset of the Hmong population being younger and more educated than the than the average uh, person, monk person from the, the Fox Valley, um, in terms of college education and so forth. But what you had is this younger generation talking about how they've the lights have gone on for them about issues related to environmental justice and pollution and that kind of thing. And so right. they feel they feel compelled and they kind of feel a burden. I, I, I remember. There's a really compelling interviewee that had just a lot of different stories, some of which are tragic. But um, one of the things that he talked about was being a biology major in, in college. He goes back home in, in the region, and, and he's trying to educate elders on these kinds of things. Yeah. It's one of these things that's really nuanced because just like, um, just like so many look at things through uh, an educated Western, white person's, whatever, lens, you're going to be 
you're going to make mistakes. You're going to miss some key details. And when you think about population population control issues, um, concerns in between the more developed and less developed world, it's almost like policy has been over the years. Well, we should just fly over and drop condoms, and magically that's going to reduce population uh, growth and such. Right. And in this case, we should just, we got to just tell them it's dangerous if you eat fish. And it's not, it's what, what we learned was things like more signage in Hmong language would help, but not necessarily for the reasons you might think. Uh, what it would, the main reason it would help, according to respondents that we interviewed anyway, was that it would show that Hmong people are valued enough that the state, the DNR, local, whoever it is, cares enough about them, that values them enough to put signs in among language. Right. The reason I say that is because that's literally what some of our respondents said, but also going back to this biology major, he, he kind of, he felt, uh, I think, defeated a little bit because he'd go back with this knowledge and people just weren't having it. And, and it wasn't because they didn't understand, it's because they weren't going to change their culture. We eat fish. That's what we do. And that's for example, we... We 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 get we harvest lots and lots of white bass, which which um, many other you know you know other groups of people look at as a um, garbage fish in some ways. Um, many Hmong people, at least, seem to not have that view. And when they're when they're doing their migra- you know their spawning migrations through the river, and I've seen it. Myself, even without doing the research, you could, the people are pulling in fish after fish after fish. So they talk about having trunks full of fish and that they share with other people in the family and their freezers full of this fish. It's important. It's important socioeconomically, but also culturally. So you, they can be educated that, well, the server's polluted and we shouldn't be eating, at least we shouldn't be eating very much. That might not cause any change in the behavior. For those reasons. Okay. Well, one more question to wrap things up with is: um, we know that um, having the the signage in the Hmong language has really been um, an improvement in the um, Doctor Valley. But what do you think? Is there anything else you think um, people could do to, um, I guess, um, improve things? meant to potentially uh, make outdoor spaces more inclusive to Hmong people, for example? Yeah, I think the answer answer is going to be basically the same um, as the answer to to that question for for other marginalized groups in our society. And that is, if we prioritize including, integrating people Hmong people, African Americans, Latinos. We prioritize including them as full members of communities. That will start to make the difference. That's my point of view on it. Yeah. We can put up, we can put up signage. We can create policies that say, let's say, some of the stuff you can't make up. But if you talk to an institution like a large university or a government entity. Well, every unit in our institution should have a diversity statement. That's good. 
That's not going to change anything, though. What's going to change <laughs> is when when we prioritize changing the structure, the structure, not not the language. It, 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 it can it can be helpful, but now how do we do that? That's that's easier said than done. But that's the kind of thing that we're alluding to at the conclusion of the paper, which is that there are many people out there that would be excellent employees of the DNR and other entities. Having having such folks actually being part of the, the power uh, structure when it comes to things like outdoor spaces, that's going to do a lot more than signage. And I'm not saying signage is bad. I, I'm saying it right. is good, but maybe for maybe more more importantly for that same reason, because it shows that you're prioritizing these people. They're important. We value you. We want you included. Um, you know, and that, and like all these things, that means you might have to give some things up. You might have to spend some more money to create new positions. You might, you know, the the, the existing power structure might might have to give give way a little bit. Yeah, you know, it's, this, it's this sort of stuff. It's bigger picture. It's harder to do, but that's really what's going to have to happen for these things to change. Is that it's not just words. It's that people like Hmong people in this case under, can see it. They understand that, hey, we are welcome. We are included um, through actions. And I think I think there are all kinds of different actions and good examples of people, you know, in our region and in other places of the country that are taking action that are going in that direction. It's, but that's a, a slower, harder process than creating a diversity statement. Well, I think... Today, Paul brought up some really good points about the importance of listening to people's voices when we're trying to make a good change in the community. And I think that was really exemplified by his use of photography in the study um, by by making uh, the participants take photographs by themselves and then explain it later in an interview. It allowed them to use their voice rather than the voice of an agenda. Yeah, I really agree with that. Um, I think it can be really hard sometimes when when we're trying to get the information we need about oh how should we change things, and the problem is we we go into it with our own ideas about how things should be done and maybe some own mis, our own misconceptions about about things. And if we just only have our own ideas in our head, we could even make things worse. That's why it's so important to let people come to their own conclusions instead of creating the conclusions for them. Pivoting over to environmental justice, I thought that the people who Paul interviewed as part of the project showed a great deal of awareness about the pollution in the Fox Valley. And that, that kind of surprised me, um, considering what we had heard in the background in the 1994 study. It was especially interesting hearing about the generational divide between the uh, folks that Paul interviewed and the older generation. I agree. I think I really think this shows um, a lot of signs of optimism for the future. I'd really hope that maybe there will be some younger Hmong people entering the DNR and uh, working to help outdoor spaces become more inclusive in the future. I think this could be a really good sign for um, our local community and what's to come. Until that happens, though, uh, we need to make sure that we are including of the Hmong community and we make sure that we help them 
to be more representative. Yeah, I really think it takes all of us to do these kinds of things. We can't just put the burden on the Hmong community. We also need to do our part in creating a more inclusive outdoor space and making sure that people are safe. Well, I would really like to thank our listeners to this podcast today. If you're interested in learning more about the study we're talking about, you can just Google uh, Fox, Wisconsin Heritage Parkway, Hmong Voices Project, um, and you'll be able to see all the photos we're talking about. They're really nice. I would suggest you check it out. Thank you.